You guys went quieter faster than I expected. <laughs> Matt's like, say hi to everybody. And then two seconds later, everyone's like, yeah, I've done that now. Okay. <laughs> so how are you guys going? Good. That's good to hear. Oh, well. So tonight we're going to continue our series on identity, as it says on the screen. Wow. I didn't actually expect that. Cool. <laughs> um, so tonight we're going to continue our series on identity. So we started this series a couple of weeks ago with Matt preaching. Um, and he talked about how we can find out our, our identity in God. Um, and how God really lays the slab of the house that is our life, right? So you can talk about your life in the context of being a house, and this is what Matt kind of did last time. Um, And he discussed how God really is the slab in which we build our lives. So we're supposed to centre ourselves on him because he created us, and that um, he really uses three different things through our creation story to tell us what we're supposed to centre our lives on. He talks about um, being image bearers, being uh, that we're supposed to bear the image of God, we're created in the image of him, and we're told to cultivate and, um, cultivate and subdue the garden around us, so we're supposed to bring order in the chaos that can be the world, and that we're actually created for vertical and horizontal relationship. So I think these three things are really important, and it's really important to note that God is the bit that holds all of that together. So God's the slab, and then these things form like the frame of a house. Before you go putting all the fancy walls and everything you put inside your house, these are the things that set the shape determine what rooms are. I could continue with this metaphor for a while. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's kind of really important because it sets a tone for everything else that we do. Um, however, we did continue to discuss the fact that we often lose sight of this thing. I know it's ironic for me to mention losing sight. Um, but we lose sight of this original purpose. We replace this original design and we decide that we're going to replace this firm foundation of concrete with, world, with other things. We pick something that we think is important that can hold the weight and we find out that we're actually putting things, all of the weight on sand instead of concrete. Um, Yeah. So tonight we're going to keep looking at our identity. We're going to look at how our identity is shaped in Christ and how he perfectly lived out the purpose that we're created for. We're going to look at how his life is an example and how he really sets a more specific framework than just these three corner, corner posts of what we've got. He talks deeply in his life about many of these different things. So we're going to go into that a bit more tonight. So, before I get too far ahead of myself, let's stop and let's pray, hey? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the work that you do in our lives and we can see it through the creation story and we can see it through everything about how you've made us. So God, I just pray that right now you would be in my heart calming it, giving me some peace. God, you've been in everyone's hearts readying them for what you're going to say to them tonight and that you would just take all of these words and use them for more than, more than they would do without you. Amen. So I figured I'd start in a pretty good place. I thought it was a good place to start by asking the question, do we even have a relational purpose? Now, I know there's a lot of people who are extroverts who would be like, yeah, of course it is. Like, all we do is people. Like, come on, it's really important. Every introvert in the room's going, no. <laughs> Trust me, I'm one of those. I watched Naomi just immediately cringe when I was like, yes. Um, But I think even an introvert would have to acknowledge the fact that God does create us to be relational. And I think that goes two ways. I think there's a vertical relationship that's between us and him, which I think he really sets from the very start, where he talks about us being image bearers and being reflections of him. You can't really reflect something you don't know. So I think he really sets this point really early for us in creation, where he says that let's create them in our image. Um, Yeah. Um, so we see this through that, through the story of the prophets. We see he continues to try and relay, like fix this relationship no matter how hard we try and break it. 
Um, we see the fall where people take this purpose and decide they're going to toss out all of the blueprints that God gave us and go, we're going to build freeform, which I'm not a builder, but that doesn't sound like a good idea. I know that they set, you know, there's architects who decide what things should be made out of and where support beams should go and all of these other things that I would not even remotely consider if I was building a house. So when we try and take this purpose from God and we try and mould it into our own thing, it doesn't hold weight. It breaks because we're just not qualified for the job. So we see God continually, we break this and the house falls down on us and the roof caves in. Now, God doesn't just leave it there. He sends prophet after prophet, king after king, judge after judge, trying to help the people figure out that they're just supposed to lean on him. They always come back to this thing of like, you've lost your purpose, you're missing this big thing, you just got to lean on God. Um, and he continues to do this. That every prophet, every judge, every king, we see, him, we see this pattern take place where he brings people back to him. They get it, they run with it for a bit. And then they go, mm, yeah, that was good, but I'm just going to put this down over here for now and then I'll come back to it later. And then everything goes bad and then we start the cycle again. And we see it over and over and over again and it just repeats until we get to the New Testament where we meet Jesus. So, um, yeah. And we see it through um, this relationship with each other as well. So how do we, are we called to do relationship with each other? I think the answer to this is yes. Um, we see it all through scripture, um, from creation where we're, made in, um, where we're made in a pair, where it says that it's not good for, one, uh, for man to be alone, so he creates Eve. Um, we see it through all of these points where we're told as a community to draw together. Uh, we, see it through, um, we see it through John 17, where it's, may they, all be, may they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. We're not just called to this half-hearted kind of spirit like silly little relationship where we just say, hey, how's your week been? Yeah, good, you. Yeah, my week's been good, and then the conversation ends, which I know we're all guilty of, especially when we're busy and thinking about something else, but we're called to a much deeper relationship with each other than this. So that's how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to have this relationship there with each other and God, but we didn't really do that. As I said before, we get through the fall, and man decides that we're going to do our own thing. And we talked about how that goes, where you try and build a wall out of pasta and then it all falls down because pasta can't bear weight. Um, <laughs> so we take this big, carefully designed thing that is our life, that is our purpose, that is our identity, and we try and put together our own version of it. So we try and take a slab and we make it out of sand and we make a sandcastle and then we're like, oh no, it rained and it fell down because we didn't consider the fact that water melts sandcastles. We do things like this where it seems silly when you point it out like that, but realistically, we can't think to the same level as God. But when we do this sort of thing where we take our own framework, we're really trying to do exactly that. We're going, I can think of every variable, I can do it better. And we see this play out in every aspect of life. So we see it play out when we're selfish, when we're so focused on what we want that we want to go for it no matter what. I grew up in a business world, you see this a lot, where it's like, I want to go over there and I don't care who gets in my way, I'm just going to go. We see it in all sorts of things, in every kind of conflict, it can almost be boiled down to someone being selfish. I found it really hard to be selfish, uh, really hard to be in conflict while thinking about the other person. It's really hard. You end up not arguing because you're thinking about them and then they're thinking about you and then it just works. It's like, oh, look at that. It's as if we're meant to be outwardly focused. Um, so yeah, we see it all through... Um, we see this all through the Old Testament, as I said. You see it through prophets, judges, kings... And we come to this point where we're brought to Jesus. And Jesus kind of 
is the same premise there where he's bringing the same messages, he's fulfilling prophecies and he's doing all the same life stuff, but where before they were just told of these consequences by a prophet who was broken, God actually gave us a really full picture of what it looks like to fulfill this purpose. More than merely what consequences happen if we don't, we got to see what happens if someone lives their life like that. We got a really beautiful picture of what happens when someone actually gets it right. Where in the prophets, you can see all of them have different points where they fall down. Some get mad at God. Some are sad that no one listens. Like there's lots of different things that are human coming out of it. And that's, that's good. They were there to do a message and they did exactly what God asked them to do. But they weren't quite the same picture as Jesus. So we see through his life that he comes. I know it's actually shocking that I came back to this point, right? That Jesus is where the identity comes from in the church. It's shocking that I came back here. It's as if like it's that, Bible, it's that uh, Sunday school answer where you can be like, God, Jesus, the Bible, and get away with a lot of things. I've kind of done that here. No, I promise I've got more notes. See? Um, <laughs> but how do we actually see Jesus do all of this then? How do we see him restore this version of relationship? How do we see him live this version of relationship? Well, I kind of broke it down into three points because you see how Jesus lives in relation with God. You see how he lives it in relation with those directly around him. And you see it with how he lives in relation to everyone else. Like literally ever in every interaction he has, he gives you an example of how you can act. So I figured we should start with the important one. He's got this relationship that's upward to God. Now, Jesus spent time with the Father many times. It's rattled off a whole bunch in Scripture that Jesus went off and prayed um, 38 times at least. There are some people who would say 39. It depends on what you class it as. But the Gospels mention this. It seems important. Literally every time he goes to do some sort of ministry, if you read the verses before, he goes and prays. Before he walks on water, before he's baptized, um, before he's healing, before any kind of outward reaching ministry, he goes and recenters himself on God. To the point where it even says that he sneaks off to go do this alone. So it says in Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. Not only did he walk off and go have a pray to recenter himself, he didn't even tell the disciples where he was going. Part of me thinks that's because he didn't want to be disturbed, and when people noticed Jesus is missing, they kind of went looking for him a lot. He had crowds of people that were following him. It's probably a good idea not to tell someone where you're going. But the next verse actually talks about when they finally find him, they were like, Jesus, people were looking for you. And he kind of just moves on. He doesn't even stop to say anything, because I think he expects the disciples to know a little bit of the fact that he does this all the time. He goes and recenters himself first because that's the most important part. Before we do anything like this, just as I had to stop myself and do just as I had to stop myself before, you have to stop and you have to recenter. You have to pray. You have to breathe. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, so then we move into the next section of people, which is those people that Jesus are close to. You see, Jesus was close to a lot of people. Not really. He was close to like 12. I think that's actually still a really big number. I can barely manage three. Um, <laughs> like true depth of relationship that he treats like family, yeah, I think it's actually really hard. And it's a really good picture that we only have such a small focus for such a deep relationship. Otherwise, it's a bit exhausting and a bit beyond, especially if Jesus could only do 12, I don't know why I thought I could do 13 ever. It's kind of a, kind of a good picture of how we should do stuff. Um, <laughs> but Jesus spent time with a very small, small group intentionally. He took these guys in, he walked with them, he lived with them, he treated them as family, and he showed them a whole bunch about how to do ministry, how to do life. They were the guys who were allowed to go looking for him when he went off to pray. They were the guys who walked alongside and got to pick his brain about different things, about how to interact with these people. How does he 
love people. There would be thousands of accounts across the years of Jesus' ministry that we don't even get to see, where they would have just been family. He treats them like that. He interacts with them. He tells them how to get better. He does all these things that a good family should do for each other in helping each other grow. Um, And then we don't just see it stop there. We actually see that the disciples got it. They took that picture that Jesus gave them by walking with them, and we see them run with it. In the early life of the church, you see it through Acts, you see it through the rest of the gospel, like through the rest of the New Testament, and even into early churches. Been people trying to take this same concept and apply it to a different group of people. So we see it all through Paul's journey in his letters. We see it through the Acts. We see it through all the way through Revelation, where it talks about relationship quite a lot. Um, and then finally, we come to the point where it's out. And I kind of put this one as reaching out and literally everybody else. So there's up, in, and everyone else. So Jesus gives a really good picture of how to handle other people. He met their practical needs. He met the world around him with, the, with a heart of love and God's grace. He interacted with them where they were at. He healed people. He touched lepers. He healed sick. He fed hungry. He opened blind eyes and deaf ears. But all throughout, he was proclaiming, that's a hard word, the word, <laughs> the word of God. And he was trying to bring people into that kingdom because he thought that was the biggest gift he could give them. Um, we see, and again, we see the disciples get this right in the book of Acts. They continue that process. Um, they had learned from him through all of this how to do that. You meet the world in the practical needs and you teach them of the spiritual need and you continue to grow with them. You walk alongside, you heal, you help. So, and I don't know about you, but I hit this framework and I was like, okay, that seems a bit different. From a world outside that tells you that care about you, work where you want to go, do what you need to do, survival of the fittest, any of these things, it's so different. So I grew up, as I said, I grew up in a business actually. My grandparents bought a business when I was really little. So this became something that was really formative in my, year, in my early years. So when I hit high school, where you're supposed to do all of the big, fun social things, I saw people as a waste of time. I saw it as they hurt people, they waste your time, they can't really help. In order to optimise and be effective in what you do in life, you're actually better off to do it solo. I ran into so many problems with this, but for a while it really seemed like it worked. I was successful, I got really good grades, I won awards, I went and did really cool stuff, I got to go work in an airport and have fun with travel and all sorts of stuff. And it was just me. So everyone looking in looked and saw success. And I think the problem when we build our own houses is from the outside they can look absolutely great. The second someone steps inside, they can start to notice that every single wall is crumbling, every single thing is held together with duct tape and a dream. They can realise that where there should be concrete, there's actually sand and your floor is now sand. Um, (laughs) They can see all of these problems, but from the outside it looks great. And I think this was really true for me. I think it was true in the fact that externally people were like, oh, Chris, you're having such a good time, you're doing really well. Internally I was depressed, I was sad, I was alone, and I couldn't really tell you why I was any of these things because nothing was going wrong. I should have been enjoying life, I was getting all the things that I thought I wanted. And I think it's because I had missed a huge chunk of what I was created to be. I missed that purpose. I was so busy living in a tiny shack that I didn't realise that God had so much more intended for life. Um, So yeah, I had really explicitly decided to ignore a framework and try and run at it on my own. And because I thought I could do a better job. I'm that underqualified person who thinks that you can do whatever 
put, you put your mind to and you don't really need to learn anything, you can just do it and it's fine. No, like it can, it can hold up a little bit, same as they found in the Old Testament through the prophets and through everyone. When you're trying to do it on your own, it can work for a little bit, but eventually it just crumbles. So I kind of talked a lot about personal example there. That's a lot of my story about how I interacted with this. But I think anyone who sits and thinks about it for a while can see it. You can talk to anyone who's even outside in that community and they'll tell you that the world sucks. There's greed, there's selfishness, there's pride. Everyone's focused on themselves. There's people in need. We can't feed everybody. Why not? You get to see all of these kinds of arguments put forward about the fact that when we set this priority scheme, when we set this framework, your house just doesn't do anything productive. At best, it sits there and looks okay. So, yeah. And I think God really presents this, the only way that we can really do any form of healing in this kind of relationship and in this kind of world, even the... It doesn't sound like they're connected, but any, the only way we can heal any vertical relationship, sorry, horizontal relationship, is to actually fix the vertical. Because when you start with the, when you start with the vertical, I'm going to get those two confused for the rest of the night now that I've done it once. Um, <laughs> so now, the only way to really fix the horizontal is the vertical, because it has so many bleed-on effects. Just as we saw from earlier when we were talking about when it goes wrong, it has bleed-on effects. When you're getting it right, it really does too. I got to see a complete worldview flip when I was in grade 12 where it went from people don't matter to now I actually spend probably more time annoying people than they would like because I care. (laughs) They went from not a priority in my life to something that I consider deeply important and one of the reasons we're here is to do relationship. And we see this through Jesus. We see all of the things that he does for the people surrounding him. He re-centers himself on prayer and then he goes and he heals people. He re-centers himself in prayer and then he teaches his disciples something about that we see how we're supposed to have this outward-reaching perspective when all the world wants us to do is scream and take it inside. We're supposed to focus on just us. So I was thinking about the sermon, and I've been thinking about it all week, and then me and Matt were talking this afternoon, and he kind of pointed out to me that there's like one or two, there's two verses that a lot of people would know here that sum everything I've just said up. They come from John 13, 33 and 34. It's a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I know I lose the wording of that a lot because he says love so many times in two sentences. It's not funny. I misplace them and I go like, okay, so I have to love one another, love one another. It says it another time, I know it. But it's as if it's important. One of the deep things that he calls us to, whenever he's talking about most important things, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and spirit and love your neighbour as yourself. He says this, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And then he says it another two times in the same verse. He really hammers home this point that we're relational, that we're supposed to be outward focusing, that we're supposed to give him the key, that we're supposed to take his plan for our house and build something with that, not just try and do it ourselves. We're supposed to take this love that we've been given and outpour it to others, whatever that looks like, however that looks. So... You just have to continue with this. And it's such a simple thing that you can sum up the last, however long I've been talking, in two verses. But it's so hard to apply. I came to a couple of questions that I wanted to share with you guys that I had trouble answering this week, which was like, have we actually got our framework set by Jesus? What parts do we keep for ourselves? You're like, yeah, Jesus, I really want to love you when I'm at church. I want to love you when I'm at youth group. I want to love you when I'm at this thing. But when I'm sitting at home playing my PlayStation... I'm going to carry on like a bit of an idiot and that's okay because that's my space. 
that's still the room of my house that I want to like that I want to build. How often do we find these things that are so seemingly so small that we just cling to, and we go, "That's the thing that I'm going to try and build myself." Whether it's your intelligence, your job, it could be anything that is even remote, even if it's good. If it tries to be the framework of your house, it's not gonna it's not gonna hold weight. So I wanted to talk to you guys and ask, how are you guys doing with that? Think about it, reflect on it. Ask yourself how you're doing with it. Are there any things that you need to talk through? Are there any things that you need to give over to Jesus properly? However, if you're one of the people who can see a lot of things that you are doing well, how are you how are you being informed of how to do that better? I always and Matt'll tell you this and he'll probably chuckle when I say it. I never try, I try to never stop moving. I don't want to acknowledge when I've done well. I want to acknowledge when I've done poorly because I can do better. But I'm hard on myself and I really, really want to improve. But it's something that I really value in this side of thinking is how are you continuing to let Jesus take more of that? It's this really big, hard thing of like, how are you going with letting go? How are you going with letting the builder do their job? Are you the guy following them around being like, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. But, mm, I don't think that's good. Ugh, I'd prefer if we did it this way. Or are you truly letting the builder do what they're meant to do and trusting that they have a better plan than you could? So just as I finish up, I want you guys to actually think about that. I want you guys to pray it through. Take a second while I'm going to pray and the team comes up and we're just going to have a moment of sitting and thinking about it. So just bear with me and pray, hey? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for... I want to thank you for all that you've done through all of this story. From start to finish, you've set our purpose. You've given us a way to live that is such a beautiful thing that we can follow. You've given us specific frameworks to follow because you know that we lose the big picture. God, I just want to thank you for bearing with us when we're trying to build our own thing and you save us when it's going to fall down on us. And God, I just pray that as we're going into these last couple of songs and as we're thinking through the rest of our weeks and our lives, would you just be in, it, be in, be in every step of that, God? I just pray that you would be growing us, shaping us, molding us, doing all those things that only you can do. And God, I just pray that we would let you have your place as the builder. I just pray that we'd be able to let go, that we wouldn't need to control, that we wouldn't need to take the reins and think that we can do it better. And we just let you be God because it's what you do. Amen. Thanks, guys.